If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then we're also going to read from Luke chapter 6. Those will be the, the two passages there. Um, as we finished up our uh, talking about our core values, and this year, Pastor has really um, conveyed not only we have core values, but some core practices that go along with it. I thought it would be good, kind of in this uh, transition period, to talk about the spirit behind the practices. In other words, it's not just that we should to do them, it's that we should, we should intelligently or in, in a way that's informed, we should do them, but knowing that they're means to another end, they're not an end in itself. And so I just want to kind of talk about this together as we read this passage and maybe look at a couple of the core practices and the spirit behind them so maybe we can better, have a better grasp of it. So, if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 4 through 6, and then turn to Luke chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if you'll turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to read in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. That'd be the downside with hanging out with Jesus, right? But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask in the next few moments that you would allow, um, that you would meet with us deep unto deep. I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity of vision about what you're doing. Meet with us, Lord. Lord, I just take a moment, I pray for our children. That they're being ministered to right now, may you... Give them a heart to know you. May they walk in your ways. May they see your beauty and taste of your goodness and want to live in your presence all the days of their life. May you bless those who are ministering to them. And then here, Lord, I pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So these two passages may not seem like they go together, but I'm hoping we can connect some dots. Paul tells us that we are to minister in the spirit uh, and not the letter. Now, he's talking about the letter of the law, and in other places, he would actually talk about the spirit of the law. So there's this idea of ministering in, in terms of the letter of the law or by the spirit. And Paul makes that clear, and we want to talk about a couple of things in that. We're going to talk about some practices, and what I want to do is try to get out of the letter of the law about the practices, try to get into the, the spirit behind them. And what we see in Luke chapter 6, the story you read about the Sabbath, is that the Pharisees could 
diligently practice the Sabbath and still miss out on God's heart in it. Diligent and consistent practice is no way of guaranteeing you'll get God's heart. So I'd like to talk about that. I think that's important. What the Pharisees missed was the spirit behind Sabbath and that God made Sabbath for man, that God made Sabbath as a way of knowing man would need rest, that man would need to contemplate him, that man would need a break from toil and work. And, and so uh, Jesus would say in other places that the Sabbath was made for man. And so when Jesus brings that man with a withered hand in front of them and asks them a very profound question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal? You see, though it may not have been lawful according to their law to heal on the Sabbath, it was in perfect alignment with the spirit of Sabbath, which was meant for man's good. And therefore, it is a good thing to heal this withered hand. You see, the Pharisees were looking at the letter of the law, and Jesus was walking in the spirit of the law. He was walking in the heart of what it means to practice Sabbath. And so we want to be able to think about these things because, listen, I, when you talk about practices, practices is not one of those things that you, you, um, you can just contemplate about. You actually have to do them. I remember one time teaching at a pastor's conference, and I talked about a couple of the practices, and, and afterwards somebody came up to me and said, look, I've been doing this for 40 years. I know all about that. And I, in my naivete, thought I will question him, which uh, when you're a young pastor to an old pastor doesn't seem... It doesn't go very well. And I just said, I'm sure you know all about it. When's the last time you practiced them, though? They do no good to talk about them. It doesn't do any good to know about them. The power's in practicing them, the doing. It's like knowing about lifting weights but not lifting one, right? Well, you're not going to get the benefit. And so I want to talk about some of these practices as we dive in, and we want to look at the why behind them, the why behind them. Look, I, I believe one of the major concerns facing the church is not how do we get those who are uncommitted to be more committed. I think the major concern is how do we help those who are committed to Jesus live in his character and power consistently. If that is done, people will be drawn to Jesus. So instead of focusing on how do we get those out there to be in here, I'd like to talk about how do we get us in here who are committed to walk more clearly in the character and power of God. And that's what the practices do. You guys have probably seen um, a, the golden circle. It has a little circle and like a bullseye, and it's like three circles in the center, and there's the why, the second is the how, and the outside circle is the what. If you can think about the practices that way or our, our Christian life, really what we are trying to do is we're trying to learn that at the why, what's the core of why we do any of this? Well, the core is we're, we are to learn from Jesus how to walk in his character and power. That's essentially what it means to live in the kingdom of God. To live in the kingdom of God is to walk in Jesus' character and power. All right? That would be the why. All right, well, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do that by becoming disciples of Jesus. We're going to do that by becoming his apprentice, by becoming his follower, by becoming his student. Okay, well, then what does that entail? That entails... Glory. That entails... That entails arranging our life around certain practices that he himself arranged his life around. Now, in church history, there's been all kinds of practices. There's really not an exhaustive list, but I want to focus on the ones that we can see in the life of Jesus. And we have touched on those, and some of those are, are not going to be new. I'm just going to maybe hopefully communicate them in a different way. If we make spiritual practices a why in and of themselves, 
we will become either delusioned or legalistic. If your why for doing the practice is so that you can be more spiritual than the next person, then you've already started down the road with an intention God never intended for the spiritual practices. The spiritual practices do not make you righteous. They're not acts of righteousness. They're acts of wisdom. It's actually a strong point to say, if you were righteous enough, you wouldn't need the practices. But no one's there. Not e even Jesus used them. All right? In other words, Jesus uh, engaged in the practices in order to keep at home with the Father and to live from the presence of God. So we want to reflect on the why. And I, I just want to give you my kind of central conviction. My conviction is this, that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life that he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, then we must believe that he knew how to live life. We can then, through faith and grace, become increasingly more like Christ by practicing the types of activity he himself practiced in order to remain at home with the Father. That's my conviction. Now, we have to test that, right? I believe we need to kind of walk, step back and walk through some things. The central claim of the New Testament, I know I'm kind of going back to the beginning, so just stay with me. The central claim of the New Testament is that God acted in the person Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection to such a degree that it launched a long-awaited and prophesied um, renewal of the world. It launched a, a revolution in which God intends to make all things new. And new creation has begun. It's not that we're waiting for it to begin. In the resurrection of Jesus, new creation has begun in Jesus. And now we are learning to live with him in such a way. We're learning to live now like we will live always in eternity. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn to do this. We're going to stumble our way through it. We're going to try to figure it out. But here's the deal. Do we honestly believe as Christians? Because oftentimes when we talk about our Christian faith, we, we don't talk about it as if it's something that should make a difference in our life. We talk, about it like it's, we talk about it like it's something that should make a difference, not something that will make a difference. We talk about it as if there's something, it's, there's something about Christianity that could possibly transform us, not something that will transform us if we engage with it. And a lot of that comes out of our own experience. In other words, what we've done is we've reduced what Christianity is about down to our personal experience instead of challenging ourselves to think about why is there a gap between my personal experience and what the New Testament calls us to. And so what spiritual practices do is help us kind of bridge that gap. So not only did Jesus come and die, not only has sin and death been defeated. Look, Paul says in Romans 5 that sin and death ruled. Everybody say ruled. He means it's the same word used to describe Jesus' lordship. That sin and death ruled over man, but then in Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquered death. Which, just think about it. If, he, if you defeated sin and the wage of sin was death, then you defeat death, which is why there's a resurrection. The resurrection is not just some like cherry on otherwise, you know, you're not the cherry on the cupcake when the death is really the main thing. Paul actually says if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we're all still in our sin. The resurrection was evidence he's conquered death. And if he's conquered death, then he's conquered sin. That's really good news, right? Now we're to go and make an announcement to the world. Sin and death has been defeated. And then we are to help others become students or apprentices or, or disciples of Jesus. Learning to obey. Learning to do. Not learning to think. Not learning to 
uh, uh, have mental consent, but learn to do. Right? Simple analogy. You, if I was going to teach you how to ride a bike, you don't know how to ride a bike when I tell you you should ride a bike. You don't know how to ride a bike when I tell you you can ride a bike. You know how to ride a bike when you can get on a bike and ride it in an appropriate way. In other words, learning to obey is like that. You don't learn to obey when you know you should obey. You don't learn to obey when you feel bad for not obeying. You learn to obey when you can, at appropriate times, obey. Now, do you really, seriously, do we honestly think that's what Jesus wants from us? I'm going to challenge that behind the practices is really your belief of what's possible in the life of Jesus Christ. If I, in the life of the Christian, as our life is hidden in Christ and Christ is in us, what is really possible in that? Because if you have a very low view of what's possible, then the practices seem like some bothersome, you know, addition to our lives that just fill up the, you know, uh, otherwise busy life. But when you see the practices as something that is training us to more completely live in the life that Jesus has died that we might live in. Then the practices become something altogether different. They become a way. They become a path. I like to say this. The spiritual practices are places we go to meet Jesus and receive his grace and be formed by him. To be clear, you, you only are transformed by grace. The question is, how do you access it? And the practices become places we go to meet Jesus to access, to receive his grace, right? Now, part of the problem with this is that we have thought about it in a, in a very difficult way. Really, there's two ways in the church that we think about receiving God's grace. On the one end, on one extreme in the church is the teaching that if you do anything, then it's not grace. If God's going to act and God's grace is going to be in your life, humanity, you have to be completely, completely passive. You can't do anything. You just got to sit there and let God act in your life, Right? like a sneeze that's just going to happen to you, right? Now listen, the problem with that is, is that occasionally happens. Saul's on the way to Damascus, and God's like, I'm stopping this thing. He doesn't really care what Saul thinks about it, right? So that does happen, but that's not a way of life. Then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people that think, if I'm going to receive grace, it's going to come from a strong emotional experience with God. And so we pray and we fast and we worship and we lament and we're waiting for God to encounter us, to supercharge us. So then in that one moment, we can be transformed. Now the problem with that is that happens. You just read revival history. That happens. The problem is neither are a, a method or a way of engaging in our ordinary lives. In the middle is what I want to talk about. And in the middle is how we arrange the ordinary rhythms of our life to meet Jesus to be taught by him, and to receive grace, and then to be transformed by him. But that's not near as exciting as the other two. If we are going to try to engage with this, so we, we, have, we have created the false opposition between grace and works. Between grace and works. Look, um, I've said it here before. God, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earnings and attitude that can accompany my effort, but they're not the same thing. So grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Maybe put it this way, grace is against merit, it's not against work, effort. You never earn it, you never merit it, but that doesn't mean we have to be passive in it. I mean, think about it, if there's anything, 
most people have spent more effort learning to play a sport than they have learning to follow Jesus. Most people have given more effort in gaining a college degree than they've given effort to following Jesus. Most people have given a more effort in learning to play an instrument or develop an expertise than they have learning to be Jesus' disciple. Now, just imagine telling the Apostle Paul that. <laughs> how might he, re- well, we don't want to know how he respond, right? Shall I come with a whip? You know, like that kind of guy, right? So, so we, need, we need this consistent, realistic practices that can aid us in ordinary life so that ordinary human beings can, by the spirit and grace of God, along with the community of saints, grow and be transformed more and more into Christ's image until we can walk in, well, we're going to walk in increasingly more character and power. All right? So, the Bible gives us a, a, a struggle that we have to walk through in that, and that is the struggle between this flesh and the spirit. Now, this is what I just want to point out. We, the flesh tends to get a bad rap, right? Uh, let, let's put the, the flesh um, would be un, unrestrained human power um, that we have whether gar- regardless if we are redeemed or not. So the flesh is something that we can rely on, we can, we can do. But here's the great news. The flesh is not... The flesh might want to be killed, but God's going to resurrect it. Your flesh, your flesh can actually be redeemed to where your flesh is actually helping you, not hurting you. In the same way you can practice something to the point in which it's so ingrained in your body it just comes out, right? That's the reason why people practice the jump shot or they do certain things so that it can happen effortlessly, almost by muscle memory, without having to think much about it, right? This is what Jesus means about don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. If you're driving a standard and you're going to go turn left and you need to downshift, you hit the foot with your left clutch, you, you downshift a second, you turn the blinker on with your left, you turn, you push the clutch in, pull the clutch out, as you put it back into uh, third gear and you take off. You did all of that without your left hand knowing what your right hand was doing. Why? Because you were practiced at it. You're not just mature when you learn to obey. Dallas Willard one time, true maturity is when you effortlessly obey where it becomes so ingrained in me you can squeeze me but what you're going to get is Jesus right so I want to talk about some of these practices as we do this and we tend to where there's something we are to say no to that's the flesh there's something we are to say yes to that's the spirit and that's one of the reasons why you see classically the practices come in two groups practices of abstinence that's something we're going to abstain from and then there's practices of engagement something we're going to do so uh, uh, practices of abstinence would be something like solitude, silence, fasting, um, frugality or simplicity. Um, Sabbath is a form of that. Um, chastity, submission. These are all forms of abstaining from something. That's a saying no to. And then there's practices of engagement like prayer and the study of scripture, generosity, celebration, service, fellowship and community, confession. So there's practices of abstinence. I'm going to say no to the flesh, so to speak. And there's practices of engagement. What I want to talk about is what are these practices trying to teach us? How do they help us meet Jesus? So we're going to look at some of the ones that Pastor has been talking about over the last uh, five, six weeks. And so we're going to start with Sabbath. First of all, we need to talk about this. When we talk about Sabbath, we're not talking about Sabbath as it was commanded in the Torah. That would be the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. 
So let's be clear about that. So it is a command, which means we ought to take it seriously. It's like when somebody says, you ought to practice forgiveness. And I, I kind of want to be like, uh, it's actually commanded. <laughs> you should practice it, but even when you don't want to, you should do it. It's like, it's a command. We need to know the difference between a command and a practice, right? You, it's not sin to not fast. It's a sin to not forgive. You see the difference? It's, it's not a sin to not practice Sabbath. It's a sin not to slow down and worship God. All right, so all right, I think we're on the same page, maybe. So we want to get to the practice of the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath? It's when we, uh, for a specific amount of time, practice denying ourselves work, busyness, or toil in order to engage in something, in order to engage in rest, delight, and contemplation. So uh, a good Sabbath, biblical Sabbath, may have four parts to it. We stop. We rest, we delight, we contemplate. We stop, we rest, we delight, we contemplate. The first thing is stop, right? Sabbath is first and foremost about ceasing from work, paid or unpaid. Glory to God. If you don't like mowing the yard and that's work, then you don't do it on your Sabbath, right? <laughs> Nobody paying you. But, uh, so it's paid or unpaid, right? What Sabbath is teaching us is to embrace our limits. You are not God. And think about this. Part of the reason for the entire fall was Adam and Eve couldn't accept the limit God gave them. Right. Hey, just, you can do all this, but just don't do that. Well, there's that thing, you know. Well, it, it embraces our limits. We have to let go of the illusion that we are somehow indispensable to running the world. We have to learn to trust God with outcomes. We have to recognize that we will never finish our goals and projects. That God is on the throne and he's managing quite well the universe without our help. That's what we start to learn. We stop to say, good things will still come to me because God is God, not because I'm working. So Sabbath is about stop, but stop from relying on the strength of our own right arm, from our own effort. So we stop. Sabbath teaches us to trust God with outcomes. But then there's rest. Once we stop, we have to accept God's invitation to rest. God rested after his own work, and if he can do it, we can do it, right? And so we engage in activities that restore and replenish our souls. You know what's interesting is to ask, ask somebody you love. Ask some friends next to you. Hey, what do you do, to really, what do, you do that you really delight in that really restores your soul? You'll be surprised how many people don't know. Just have no idea. What restores and replenishes our soul? Not what helps you cope with anxiety, what replenishes and restores you. There's a, there's a difference. We'll talk about that in a minute when we talk about fasting. <laughs> I'm going to have fun. Uh, I know that. So we, We're resting from our unpaid work. That requires us again to, uh, let me give you some of these things. So uh, we engage in activities that restore and replenish us, like napping, glory to God, hiking, reading, eating good food, enjoying hobbies, playing sports, enjoying people. Right? Resting requires that we will plan, so we got to plan ahead if we're not going to do that. But you'll be surprised how often we avoid rest because we are afraid of what we might find in our souls if we slow down. One of the reasons why I think every Sabbath should, should have a little portion of solitude in it, we'll get to it in a minute, because what ends up happening in solitude is you give your soul a chance to emerge. You kind of find out there's some things going on there that's not good. <laughs> At least if you're me. Maybe you got good things, you know. So we rest. We stop, we rest. The third thing is we delight in Sabbath. 
right? After finishing his work, God pronounced that it's very good. And that wasn't just some afterthought. He was enjoying what he had made. He looked at it and delighted in it. It was a joyful celebration. And so part of observing Sabbath is that God invites us to join in the celebration, to enjoy and to delight in his creation and all the gifts that he offers us in it. There's so many forms of these gifts, including people, places, and things. So part of practicing and planning the Sabbath is to ask yourself a genuine question. What is it you really and truthfully delight in? What causes, what is so enjoyable to you, it causes your soul to overflow in worship to God? We are to delight. This may differ for each of us, but that's part of the Sabbath invitation, is to enjoy and delight in creation. In other words, through any and every means possible, on Sabbath, we seek to feast on the miracle of life with our senses. And this is celebration uh, that falls over into the worship of God by enjoyment of his creation. Or maybe put it this way, Sabbath is about delight through and celebration of God through appropriate and legitimate pleasures. Now look at me for just a second. We live in a world bombarded by materialism and filled with all kinds of illegitimate pleasures. But one of the greatest means of resisting illegitimate pleasure is worshipful delight and legitimate pleasure. One of the greatest um, things that help us resist materialism and illegitimate pleasures is worshipful delight and legitimate pleasure. When, when I can take joy in the things in my life, whether it's playing with my kids or whether it's enjoying a meal with my family or whether it's on a, a walk with my wife, whatever it is, I, in, in enjoying those moments that spill over into worship, what it's reminding me is my life is filled with good things. And that deceitful desire telling me I need to reach beyond it because God's not faithful, forgot about this because this is good. So delight is a part of it, which brings us to the fourth thing about a Sabbath, contemplation. Now, let me be clear. Well, pondering the love of God is a central focus of our Sabbath. What makes a biblical Sabbath is that it's holy unto the Lord. What that means is I'm not taking the time off from God, right? We are drawing closer to him. So Sabbath is an invitation to see God's invisible hand and all the visible aspects of your world. It is to look with intent and recognize the hidden ways God's goodness shows up in your life. And the way God's goodness has been at work in your life when you might have been too busy to notice it. It is a way of contemplating, whether that's through prayer or through scripture. I'm not saying the Sabbath has to be filled with all, I mean, it needs to be filled with this all the time. It will be helpful. But at contemplation really means uh, we are at, uh, acutely focused on those aspects of God's love that come to us through so many gifts from his own hand. Right? In other words, we intentionally look for his grandeur in everything from people food, art, babies, sports, hobbies, music. We look for God's goodness. In this sense, contemplation simply becomes an extension of delight, where we look for evidence of God's love in all things he has given us to enjoy. Now, imagine what your life would be like if consistently and routinely you were in wonder at all the good gifts that God has placed in your life. How would that help with your anxiety at work? How will it help with your marriage? How will it help with your children? 
How will it help with your depression? How might it help with your uh, anxiety and, and, um, and um, worry about outcomes? If I see my life, there are so many good things I even forgot about. That's how good God is. He's filled my life with good things, and most of them I even forgot about. So part of Sabbath is particular contemplation on the goodness of God. So stop, rest, delight, contemplate. The consistent practice of Sabbath trains us, and this is what's important. Here's the spirit behind it. We're not just doing it to say that we did it. What's the point of it, A.T.? What's the why behind it? What's Sabbath helping us? Sabbath is helping us learn to trust God with our life to trust God with the outcomes of our life. We're learning to trust God. We're learning to see and enjoy his good gifts, which only cultivates our confidence in God more, which then begins to spill over, and we begin to learn we can practice Sabbath almost every day. Because what we do is we learn to live at rest in all things. Writer Hebrews says there's now a rest that we might enter. And that rest has come from Jesus. So what we learn is that my life is filled with good things not because I am there doing stuff or I'm able to hold it together, but because God is faithful. That's a big lesson we learn from Sabbath. Now here's the deal. You can hear all that and go, all right, great, AT, that's what Sabbath teaches you. But if you don't do it, you will not experience these things. Now listen, I'm just going to tell you, you can do it and still not experience it. So let's do it intentionally. To look for these things. All right. The next thing I need to just move forward. I'm going to try to cover a couple things. Fasting, for example. No, no. I had solitude first. Okay. Here we go. Solitude. Solitude is not the same thing as uh, Sabbath, though it can be there. But solitude is when, for a specific amount of time, we deny ourselves companionship to focus on our relationship with God. This is very important. Solitude is not isolation. Solitude is about concentration. It's about contemplation with God. And this is what's ironic. Solitude actually frees us. It helps us break free from those patterns of human relationships and interactions, those patterns of emotions. I wake up anxious. I go to bed anxious. I feel like I'm chasing my tail all day, trying to figure out where the kids are. What game do I got to go do? What pra- it frees us from all that interaction so we can just stop for a moment and be with God. And solitude lets us return back to people being free from those dynamics of relationships. Listen, I'm telling you, oftentimes, the greatest um, places and foothold of sin in our life or sin in our personalities come from um, interactions and reactions and relationships that we have a hard time breaking out of. Solitude, practice well, helps us break free from them and return back to those relationships and, and love and in care without having to enter into the same dynamics. I mean, we talk, and it, we talk about being individuals, but let's be honest, you know, our conformity to, to social issues is honestly remarkable. It's like, here, buy this cologne and you'll be unique like the other 10 million people that bought it. Like, we try to be individual so much, but in the end, if you look, we're really conformed to all of these things. And so solitude allows our soul time to emerge. But here's the problem. There's a danger with solitude because it will crack open, if you let it, the shell of superficial securities and reveal our selfishness, insecurities, our shame, the deceitful desires and lies we believe. It'll crack it all open and begin to reveal it to us. But look, it does no good to hide all that if it's in there. I guarantee you in solitude, if God begins to reveal these things to you, you just need to know he intends to pour out his grace to help. Right? So that's what solitude allows to happen. We have to learn, if we're going to 
learn in solitude, we learn that we must cling to Christ, to trust his presence. But I'm going to tell you another thing you learn in solitude, if you'll just hear me. One thing solitude can teach you is a healthy distrust of your flesh. A healthy distrust of your flesh. Like, man, that seemed like a really good idea. Now that I'm thinking about it, I was wrong. That was actually evil. It helps us become aware of it. All right. I just need to say, if you're going to practice solitude, you're going to need to know it may cause pain to your family and friends. There are people in your life who need you to keep their lives together. So when you practice solitude, they're going to have to deal with their own souls as well. We must respect their pain. We must make, in love and in prayer, make wise arrangements for them, helping them understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. But in the end, if you're going to practice solitude, it's probably going to require those you love to learn to trust God as well. And that's not a bad thing. All right. Quickly, fasting. Let me just kind of give you the bullet points on fasting. Fasting when we abstain from, for some time from food and drink, right? But here's what I want you to see. Fasting reveals that much of our peace often depends on our eating. Anybody ever notice this? Anybody notice that you could eat enough pepperoni that you feel peaceful, but you're really just full? Like that, that's kind of close, right? What, what, let me just encourage what, what fasting helps us is it confirms something to us. It confirms that you do not have to satisfy every desire of your body to be content and joyful. And I'm telling you, that is a key lesson if you're going to follow Jesus. I do not have to satisfy all the desires of my body, even foundational ones like food, in order to be content. You begin to find there's more resource in God than you ever imagined when we practice fasting. Confirms our dependence on God. Fasting is a form of suffering, and it helps us learn how to suffer joyfully, which is another thing we're going to have to learn. I'm just saying, if you think one day, if this all goes, you know, bad, I have, an, I have the ability to, I'm going to lay down my life for Jesus, but you can't stay away from tacos for a day, you probably deceived yourself. You see what I'm saying? Let's be real about it. Let's not be idealistic. Let's get down in the, the, the grit of life. And we were learning to fast, as people that fast, we're learning to trust Jesus even in suffering. All right, well, I, uh, I need to, to move on from fasting, but let me just tell you this. I encourage you to think about something. Would you think about the activity? This is what we tend to not talk about when we talk about spiritual practices, and that is you already have practices, they just may not be very spiritual. It's not like, do you want to have practices? You have them, i.e., look at what you do when you're trying to cope with stress. All right, are you the pint of ice cream person? Are you the Netflix person? Are you the run till I'm heart's about to blow up person? What do you do to handle stress? And I just encourage you, find out that thing you do to cope and fast from it and ask Jesus to meet you. Yeah, now yeah, we're talking, right? Yeah, let's get in there. And, and everybody's like, no ice cream? Right? Uh, but you get my point. Instead of running to it, what happens if I run to God and say, God, I'm, I'm, I realize I've replaced coming to you with this. Now I'm here with you, and I'm panicking and freaking out. I'm not saying it's going to be all calm. He's going to let you freak out. I promise you. But what's going to happen is you're going to slowly realize none of that was really helping. None of that was healing. All right. Um, I want to hit on one more, or a couple more before we end, and that is frugality or simplicity. Pastor mentioned simplicity about cleaning out your closet. Anybody find that difficult? You know, I was like, that, no, that, we're going, that, I think, that, I'll give that away, give that away, give that away, and then you're like, no, I kind of like that. Uh, I still might use that, haven't used it for 10 years, but I might use it. Okay. So let's talk about frugality and simplicity, because in our world, I think we need to hear it. 
in frugality or simplicity, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desire or hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. Now, I'm not saying this has to be a way of life. I'm saying it can be a practice from time to time. But frugality is when I refuse, I abstain from using money and goods at my disposal to merely gratify, merely gratify my hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. Look, the spiritually wise person has always known frivolous consumption will corrupt your soul. I work with an individual who was telling me all about the suits he just had tailored, and he was like spending 12 grand a suit. And I remember thinking, even if I had all that money, I wouldn't spend it on a suit. Like, why? You see, there, there's a point. Why? 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 Anyway, I'm not going to. I'll come back, AT. Sorry. I don't want to get judgmental about it. Uh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> hey, confession's on here, and I guess I just did that. So, uh, but look, fr frivolous consumption can corrupt our soul away from trusting and worship of God. What frugality and simplicity do is it frees us from the concern and involvement with a multitude of desires that would make it impossible for us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. In our current world, a large part of freedom that comes from frugality is the freedom from the spiritual bondage caused by financial debt. But look, Joseph, uh, sorry, John Surin, a, a great saint, was once asked, why is it when people wish to be great for God, so few actually find greatness in God? And this is what he said. The chief reason, he replied, is that they give too big a place to indifferent things. Simplicity is a commitment to a set of eternal priorities and that frees us from my concern with status. I'm no longer worried. Do my neighbors think I'm successful? What a waste of human energy. Simplicity frees me. And it, it, when it's accompanied with generosity, my self-restraint that I practice in frugality and simplicity overflows into blessing to others. Right? Think about it. This is why I think it's important for us. Look, I don't want to get political and I need to start landing play, but listen, take capitalism. Oh, this is going to be fun. Look, I believe that capitalism, conscientious capitalism, let's put it that way, um, is probably the best economical system the world can come up with that gives the best possibility for justice and the best safeguards against injustice. But it's not perfect. If we're not careful, we're going to make a virtue of greed. What the rest of the ages is called a vice, if we're not careful, that, that unrestrained desire, we call virtue. And I'm just telling you one thing that simplicity does that helps us fight against the onslaught of our own environment. So consider that. I'm going to skip a study of scripture and worship. I think we have those. I want to just touch briefly on um, service and confession. And then I'm going to land this plane. Everybody all right? Is this helpful to kind of see the spirit behind it? Like what, are we, what God is doing with it? Okay. So... Um, in service to others, we engage our goods and strengths in the active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in our world. Am I, am I messing up too much? Breaking up? Okay. Uh, service is when we engage our goods and strengths in active promotion of the good of others and the causes of God in the world. But here's what I want you to see. Paradoxically, service is the high road to freedom from bondage to other people. As Paul pointed out, as we serve others, 
and we serve them unto the Lord, we can cease to be men pleasers and have the eye servants, as he calls it, right? Service to others in the spirit of Jesus, listen to this, allows us the freedom of humility that carries no burden of appearances. I don't have to appear to be something other than I am. I am a child of God who finds myself at this moment able to do this good and right thing to this person or, or this event, and then I go on and do the next one. Humble service, service that's not um, solicitous. I'm not announcing my service to others, right? It protects us from spiritual pride. Look, I'm telling you, you see somebody that is anointed for years and then has a huge fall in their life, what begins to happen is that pride begins to build up as they're the man of power of the hours, the way it used to be said, right? What service does is keep us from spiritual pride. All right, well, the uh, uh, fellowship and community, right? We need each other. I'm going to kind of go past that one for a second. Um, I will just say this. Here's something about community that's important. Community trains us and teaches us how to love people we didn't choose. You don't get to choose who God adds to the people of God. You don't get to choose who God has to your community group. How's that? <laughs> In other words, we begin to learn to love people we didn't choose, which is a really good lesson because we're supposed to, like, love the whole world. <laughs> so, anyway, you get that. All right, confession. I want to end with this one. and then we'll, uh, Confession is a practice that is an is extension of community or fellowship, as it might be called in the, in the New Testament. And in confession... We let trusted others know of our deepest weaknesses and failures. This actually becomes nourishment to our faith in God and his provision of our needs. Through his people, we, he deepens our sense of God's love for us and our humility before our brothers and sisters. As we lay down the burden of hiding, is what I want you to see. As we lay down the burden of hiding and pretending, which takes up a bunch of our energy, what we begin to find is that God's love that was always available to me comes to me but through people. I believe one of the reasons why, I believe one of the reasons why the community of saints or the church has had such, it is common to find such superficial community is because we've given up the practice of confession. Confession has a way of just getting down to it. It has a way of where I am known, but yet I'm loved. It has a way of taking us deeper. Now, again, trusted others. Jesus practiced confession. Did you know that? Not necessarily of sin, but he practiced confession of temptation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to his disciples, and Matthew makes a point of saying, and Jesus said, my soul is deeply sorrowful and filled with grief. That Deeply sorrowful is the strongest phrase in Greek for mental depression. Jesus is confessing to his disciples, I'm deeply depressed and my soul is grieving. Now, that wasn't sin. That was temptation. But confession helped him through it. So, again, erasing our life. Confession can connect us to reality. It deepens our experience of God's love. It reduces the shame and guilt. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the depth of shame and guilt that you experience. Or maybe you don't experience it. Maybe you spend trying to outrun it is often tied to the fact that we think if somebody really knew what was going on with me, they wouldn't love me. 
You see, when you pretend to be something that you're not and the other person responds in love, it doesn't actually satisfy that deep longing for love. You know why? You know they don't know you. So it still does not meet that deep desire we have to be loved because we live with the sneaky suspicion if they, just, if they really knew, they wouldn't love me. But what confession does is lays that all out and I find that by grace and faith, the other person is still there with loving me and God's love towards me. This is one of the reasons why like uh, recovery groups, in my opinion, are one of the closest things we see in the New Testament church. I mean, they're just... Anyway, you get it. Poor confession. So here's my point with all this. Are these practices enough? Would the worship team go ahead and come? Are these practices enough? I think that's a legitimate question. Um, I think they are. Um, I have a, a long answer for that that lets us receive the life of Christ. But I honestly think that's the wrong question. I think the real question would be this. Have you taken following Jesus seriously? What are you routinely doing that enables you to walk more deeply with God? And is it working? Are there potentially other things that Jesus practiced that could help you walk more deeply with God? You see, the question is not, should I really practice Sabbath or fasting? The question is, at the depth of it, do you believe that the life Jesus offers is the highest quality of life that we can live? Or do you think you're better off creating your own life and trying to sprinkle a little Jesus in it? The question is not what you think about Sabbath or fasting or solitude. The question is, do you trust that Jesus knows more about how to live your life than you do? And why would I, if I want to be like Jesus, go about it by doing nothing that he did? Right? Where else do you do that? I want to get the results of that guy. How are you going to do it? By doing nothing that they did. What would it look like to take Jesus seriously? Look, we do this all the time. Today, on the, in the Super Bowl, at some moment today, Right? Today's Super Bowl Sunday. I promise to have you out like an hour before the game starts. <laughs> All right, just joking. Listen, Super Bowl, at some point in today's game, at some point, there's going to be a clutch moment where the game might be on the line or the momentum's on the line, and somebody either does something amazing or fails, one of the two, right? But if that, whatever's about to happen, what you need to know is what you see in that moment took thousands of hours of preparation off the field to be ready in that moment. What I'm trying to tell you is, instead of waiting until we're in temptation to try to be like Jesus, if we will practice away from moments of temptation in the ordinary events of our life, we will find in those moments of temptation, it comes out of us quite easily. And that's when, my friends, we find Jesus' words to be true. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Would you stand with me? Your GP2RL for today is create a plan to engage in a few different practices. I don't know if you did all of the ones that we covered over the last six weeks, but I just encourage you to engage in a few different ones, but pay attention to how God might be meeting you in them. Something to try. Well, we're going to take a moment to worship. Today is actually a, uh, our elders are going to come for our our, as our prayer team this morning, that's Jim and Diana Howard, if you guys would come. Jason and Heather Shiflett, Ryan and Gina Perry, Derek and Krista Wilson, Dave and Lauren Fulford, Wade and Jennifer Moore, and of course, Pastor Lawrence and Tracy would be leading all of that Montley crew. They're going to be here to help receive you if you have anything. 
that you need prayer for. Now is the time for worship. It's a time for response. There's communion in the back. There's giving stations if you'd like to practice and worship through tithes and offerings. But I just want to end with a couple of things. One is this. When it comes to the practices, don't try to be a hero. There really are no spiritual heroes. The heroes that you have that you think are spiritual heroes, if you were to ask them, they would say they're not. See what I'm saying? We want this to be conducive to real life. Take the long view, not a short view. You say, well, I don't have enough time. Well, here's the good news. Practices do not, you don't slow down for the practices. The practices is what slows you down. So you're too busy. You need them even more. Right? And then the last thing is, in practice, maybe you're here and you're going, and this is what I really wanted to hit. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I need help to more clearly see Jesus and the life he offers because I'm not sure I choose it. You don't wait until you see it to do the practices. There's something about engaging the practices that help you see it. So give it a go. Create some room. You're going to fail. You're gonna, it's going to require your creativity and your unique contribution, but get after it. And what you're going to find is that God will meet you there and he will form you. And when, it, when you're different, you're not going to say it was because of the practices. You're going to say, because he who began a good work in me is finishing. So Lord, I just ask in the next few moments, would you meet with us deep under deep? We want to stay out of one ditch of legalism, but the other ditch of just complete non-commitment to you. And we want to walk that narrow road with you. So would you teach us how to do it? Would you capture our hearts and affection? Would you capture our imaginations sufficiently that we might become different kinds of people because of your power and your grace? And there will be a community of love and power because of your grace. But I just thank you for this in advance what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Just take a moment and worship. Just come as you feel that.